Hello, and welcome to the Employment Law Podcast. I'm Brian Powles, Director of PCC Employment Lawyers. I'm joined again today by my colleagues, solicitors, Essie Maravara and Courtney West. We've been doing a, a series, really, of podcasts around managing difficult employees. A, a month or so ago, we talked about underperformance. Last week, we talked about managing personal leave. Uh, this week's really dedicated to the same issue, but but it's more about the management of employees that have had a long-term absence due to uh, personal injury or illness and how to take that next step really when it becomes apparent that perhaps the actual inherent requirements of the role can't be met. So we're going to discuss some of the legal risks that arise in this situation, some of the procedures that need to be followed. There's a really high-risk area of law and something that we encourage people to seek advice before taking any action that's adverse to an employee. But we thought we'd sort of unpack the issues a little bit now as a follow-on from last week's talking about personal leave. After we address that, um, we're going to do the good, the bad, the ugly, as always. And then we watched, thanks to Essie, we watched uh, a movie from 1957, seven years old, <laughs> called... Um, 12 Angry Men, and I got a pleasant surprise. I really liked it. So we're going um, to review that later. So basically, first of all, managing sick or injured employees, I, I, I think it's really important to start with two basic propositions. The first one is that all employees, um, including casuals, are entitled as a workplace right to be absent from work but for, for reasons of illness. This has been a really important part of of workplace protection in, in, in modern society for, for quite a while, and that's a fundamental one. For a number of different reasons, it's, it's completely unlawful to terminate people on the grounds that they're sick. However, as a, as a, as a second proposition, uh, I think it's important to understand that where an employee is unable to continue in their role because of illness or injury, subject to a couple of qualifications, an employer is not required to just continue to employ them. And so what we're really going to discuss is the is the large gap in between those two propositions. However, really, the, the purpose of this podcast is not really to talk about personal leave. Um, it should be sort of accepted that if people have personal leave and they're sick, they're going to use all of their personal leave. But really, the purpose of this one is to talk about, okay, what what happens if the personal leave is is, is basically used up and then we still have an absent What's the approach there? As I said, there's a number of legal risks. We're going to talk about them in a little bit of detail, but basically, the, as a starting point, I think the general protections provisions of the Fair Work Act are really important, and in particular, Section 352 of the Act, which protects employees from being dismissed because of a temporary absence or illness. And in effect, uh, that is in force until an employee has used their personal leave and still been absent for a period of three months. In a nutshell, that's a little bit more complicated than that. But, but that's the first one. We've also got section 351, which, which prevents any type of adverse action on the grounds of personal illness. And also section 340, which protects against adverse action for the exercise of a workplace right. Now, obviously, the taking of personal leave or the taking of either paid or unpaid personal leave, is a um, is protected attribute. Now, as well as that, we have, and probably most importantly on this discussion, is the Disability Discrimination Act. 
which works in a very similar way to Section 351 of the Fair Work Act. It's And there's a sort of a connection between the two. The Disability Discrimination Act provides that it's unlawful to discriminate against either directly or indirectly an employee on the grounds of their disability. And disability is defined very broadly as any illness or injury which is either temporary or permanent. So the, the ordinary conception of disability, which we tend to think in, in, in normal language as being someone that's sort of permanently disabled, Disability Discrimination Act can be a temporary illness. So it's important to understand that it's an unlawful form of discrimination to, to adversely treat somebody because of their disability. Now, there's some important exceptions to this. First of all is that it's not unlawful if a person cannot perform the inherent requirements of the role. And the inherent requirements is a concept we'll talk about in a little while. The inherent requirements test is made only after any adjustments, any reasonable adjustments can be made to the role. There is an obligation to make adjustments to a role to accommodate somebody so that they can perform the inherent requirements. And it's only an adjustment is only unreasonable if it causes unjustifiable hardship to the employer. So they're the two concepts that are really important to, to, to talk about. Now, Section 351, which, which prevents adverse act of the Fair Work Act, sorry, which prevents adverse action against him, employees, d- directly refers to the Discrimination Act and it is not unlawful. And, and adverse action is not unlawful under Section 351 if it is not unlawful under the Discrimination Act. So it, therefore, the Disability Discrimination Act becomes kind of an overriding consideration to Section 351 of the Fair Work Act. Um, so that's that's always the, the starting point. The, the next consideration really is the Section 340, which is about the exercise of the workplace right. Is very similar to Section 351 in the way that it works, but it's about the protection of the exercise of a workplace right and the taking of personal leave or the making of a workers' compensation claim are really important considerations uh, because they are workplace rights. So it would be very common to see an application from an employee that is uh, based on both Section 340 and 351 at the same time in the same application. Final consideration is unfair dismissal. As we as we know and we talk about a lot on this podcast, a dismissal that is harsh, unjust or unreasonable is, is, is unfair and capable of providing a remedy to the employee, either reinstatement or compensation. Now, harsh, unjust and unreasonable, as we've talked about on a, in a few different contexts, uh, as a balancing act consideration and the factors are found in Section 387 of the Act, one of the most important ones is, is is whether there's a valid reason for dismissal and a, a dismissal will generally be considered unjust if there's no valid reason. Now, when you're talking about the reason being incapacity um, on medical grounds, that valid reason will really turn on the same inherent requirements test under the Disability Discrimination Act. It's not a valid reason unless the person can't perform the inherent requirements of the role after any reasonable adjustments are made. So that's where those are tied together. It's also maybe considered harsh in some circumstances. So so that's the basic framework of it. How do you assess those risks holistically? And really the best way is to look at that at the starting point is to look at the inherent requirements of the role, because that's critical to both the Disability Discrimination Act 
but it's also critical in relation to the Fair Work Act, both general protections and unfair dismissal for the reasons I've spoken about. Inherent requirements that if that exception is going to be used, relied upon by the employer, the employer is going to need to show what the inherent requirements of the role are, that it can't be done by someone with a disability, with a person with that disability, and they'll need to show what consideration was given to reasonable adjustments, whether they could be made, and whether or not the reasonable adjustments resulted in unjustifiable hardship. And, and all of that, from an onus perspective, is on the employer. And there's pl plenty of case law available to demonstrate that where the employers fail to do that, uh, a finding of discrimination will be made. The inherent requirements as well, and a very, very common mistake that employers fall into, is thinking that a position description is the same as the inherent requirements of a role, and it's simply not. The discussion of inherent requirements, in effect, it's the essential elements of a role. C can the role be done? Can the role be considered done without those things? Um, and it's also important to note that it's not just about personal capacity. Um, it, it, it's about context. It can be about legal considerations. Um, it can be about health and safety. It's a couple of really important cases on that. I think from um, you know more than twenty years old, old, but they're still seminal. Qantas and Christie <clears throat> was a case that's that's one of the seminal cases on in, inherent requirements. That was where uh, a Qantas pilot was required to fly over countries and the countries had regulations about the age of people flying in their airspace. Pilots over 60 are not allowed to fly over the airspace of various countries and for that reason a, a pilot was, was effectively dismissed and the court held that a, a, a legal consideration such as that would constitute an inherent requirement of the role. It's not just about physical capacity. And, you know, a, a much more common scenario that we see a lot is where a driver's licence is a requirement of a role and somebody loses their driver's licence. Again, that, that would be considered an inherent requirement uh, of a role. So, and I know with the driver's licence, if somebody lost their driver's licence because of a medical condition, it would not be discriminatory, therefore, to dismiss them from a role for the, from that point of view, so long as the reasonable adjustments are considered. The, the other really important case is um, uh, X against the Commonwealth, which was a soldier being dismissed uh, for being HIV positive uh, in circumstances where the Commonwealth argued that he couldn't bleed safely, which is a kind of pretty gross idea i suppose um but but again no, that's a authority for the proposition that being able to perform your role safely can be an inherent requirement of a role so to be able to perform your role and bleed safely like they're assuming there's injury as well it's really interesting it's a really important proposition that that this health and safety of other people in the workplace preserving that is an inherent requirement of pretty much all roles, I would say. Yeah, even if you're anticipating bleeding. <laughs> <laughs> Reasonable adjustments are any adjustment that can be made that doesn't cause the employer unjustifiable hardship. And so that's basically a context 
and subjective consideration on a case-by-case basis. So, for instance, you know, a employee that works for a large corporation that was visually impaired, for instance, and required software, and the software was, you know, two or $300, without question, that would be considered a reasonable adjustment to make to allow that visually impaired person to perform the inherent requirements of the role. On the other hand, uh, you know, a small business employing three or four people wouldn't be required to spend $100,000 making a certain workplace wheelchair safe if one of their employees hadn't, you know, an accident outside of work, etc. That would be an example of something that would cause unjustifiable hardship if the expense of the reasonable adjustments was made. There's been some other really interesting examples. Um, For instance, allowing a nurse to only work day shift in response to her contention that her circadian rhythms demanded day shift only was considered not a reasonable adjustment because of the impact that it would have on the other workers. So there's a couple of different ones to that. That's a really tricky part of it. But the fundamental test, and it's another mistake that a lot of employers make, is that the inherent requirements test can only be applied after those adjustments are made. It's, it's a, a common mistake that employers will think that, okay, well, we don't need to do the adjustments because the person can't do the inherent requirement. It's actually, that's putting the cart before the horse. You need to consider the adjustments, make the adjustments, and then consider whether the inherent requirements can be fulfilled. Now, I think it's also really important that onus of having to prove those things is really fundamental in the sense that employers are not medical experts. So when you get to the point where you are assessing the inherent requirements of the role and the employee's capacity to do the inherent requirements, it it can't be made by the employer alone. It needs to be based on medical evidence, not the employer presumption. So this is where it becomes quite important in some situations to obtain that medical evidence, which can either be done by asking for the employee's consent for their treating practitioners to provide a report. More commonly, it needs to be done by an independent medical examination. Now, in most of these situations where you have someone that's been long-term absent because of an illness or injury, a direction for that employee to attend an independent medical examination will be a lawful and reasonable direction. And if they refuse to do so, um, then you know disciplinary, disciplinary action can follow as a result of that. But whether or not it's lawful or reasonable, and that's something you've looked at, Courtney, haven't you? It is something I've looked at. So Blackadder and Ramsey Butchering Services in 2002 held that an employer also has a right to request that an employee attend an IME, being an independent medical examination, if there is a genuine indication of a need for it and to that it is reasonable for the employer to make that request, which takes us to Daniel Cole and PQ Australia Limited 2016 case that sets out the factors that need to be taken into consideration when determining the reasonableness of the request. I should go back and say the direction is lawful. We don't need to question that because there is no law saying that you can't direct an employee to attend an independent medical examination. So therefore we're just considering reasonableness. 
And there were kind of six key points in this case that needed to be considered. So the first was whether there's a genuine indication of a need for the examination. So, for example, has the employee actually been absent from work for a long time or absent without explanation? The second uh, consideration is does the employer have evidence of an illness which relates to the employee's capacity to perform the inherent requirements of their role? So is the illness even relevant to those to that? Third, has the employee provided adequate medical information already to explain their absences? For what information does the employer request um, if they're making that direction to attend an IME? And is that information being requested actually relevant to the role? So you can't just ask for all of their medical information. Five, was the employee advised beforehand of the matters that would be considered during that IME assessment? And then six, is the direction genuinely aimed at determining independently whether that employee is fit for work? Yeah. So it's really just trying to narrow the scope. You can't just get... Is that, is that our message... And I keep seeing like the dots, like someone's typing and I sort of know it's incoming. (laughs) That happened to me when I was in the Industrial Relations Commission and the commissioner got really cranky about it. And it was you guys chatting about some something something that was not work related. And I was just trying to shut it all off. But yeah, anyway, we'll just press on. I think that's a really, sorry, I was going to say, that's a really important point. That last one is that you can't just use an IME as a weapon if that's what you're trying to do. Is it required? Is it genuinely required to know? And and in circumstances, I think where where it really is required is either when when there's a a possibility that the person can't perform the inherent requirements, there's a genuine possibility, or if there's a possibility that work is a health risk to that employee or to other employees. Yeah, so in this case, in this case, the employee had actually only been absent for one day when his employer directed him to attend an IME. Wow. Um, so therefore, obviously, it was found that it wasn't it wasn't reasonable. Um, it's just interesting that that was the case that that's, set out those considerations. That's, that's tough. One day. Yeah. <laughs> and again, like I said at the very beginning, um, if, if the concern is someone using personal leave, then generally speaking uh this this is not an available where we're you know the vast majority of cases and i won't go into the exceptions because otherwise this will be too long in the vast majority of cases this becomes a consideration when personal leave is exhausted and and the person is still absent normally on unpaid leave there's also workers compensation considerations but i i, I don't again i don't want to get into those necessarily today either so also it, it, it costs money to direct, if you're going to direct an employee to attend an IME, that takes time. The employer's bearing that cost. You're not going to do it for a day. It's actually, yeah. it's not it's not worth it in any sense. Absolutely. And the direction will have to, like, I, I think it costs about two and a half, three thousand dollars at least. And then you have to consider the cost of actually uh, a lawyer providing a report to the independent medical examiner, which, among other things, needs to set out what the inherent requirements of the role are. And that, as I said before, is critical. You get that wrong 
and there's a world of pain. You know, the, the inherent requirements need to be very specifically communicated to whoever's doing the medical assessment. Mm -hmm. But yeah, that's, that's pretty much it. But look, it's a very, very complex area. We've only just scratched the surface and I would normally not advise employers to handle these types of situations without getting professional advice. I would be very nervous about any employers handling the situation purely on the basis of this podcast, put it that way. So, <laughs> it's certainly not the purpose. So um, the good, the bad, the ugly. Yes. What do we got? Okay. I have a, a good. Yep. I'll just, well, I don't know. Everything's ugly in some way. <laughs> so the high Employment point, law is an ugly, <laughs> ugly, ugly area of law. I try and find something positive and there's still undertones of, ugliness. So the High Court has released its new policy on workplace conduct, so the Justice's workplace conduct policy. And the ugly part is that this has come after allegations of sexual harassment against the former High Court Justice Hayden. But policies are good. Employers reviewing their policies and trying to make meaningful change is a good thing. So under the new policy, Employees who are alleging inappropriate conduct um, can request formal external investigations and, if necessary, they can secure alternative positions of equivalent status elsewhere. So that's just a good protection for victims of sexual harassment. Um, And importantly, if an allegation is made that warrants a formal investigation, the policy sets out that an independent external advisor will be engaged to conduct that and the Attorney General will be notified. And then they're conducting anonymous surveys just to check that this new policy is actually effective and reviewing it. So it's good to see. Judges doing stuff, naughty stuff, is always ugly. So ugly. Mm. (laughs) Do you have a good, Essie? Yeah, um, an unexpected good. Um, It's about the budget. I feel like usually my comments about the budget are... (laughs) I've got some budget. I've got some budget. (laughs) But um, the coalition budget actually promises to fund a dedicated small business unit um, within the Fair Work Commission that would provide assistance to small business employers um, to help them navigate their workplace obligations. So um, I think that's definitely, I think in the past, there's been a lot of talk about giving more funds to the Fair Work Ombudsman. But um, I think this, considering how complicated um, awards and other areas of employment law can be, this would yeah, be um, definitely good. Definitely. And they, they, they are under-resourced. Yeah. Um, and they have been for a while. My good is also budget-related, um, and it's kind of a good. It's I'm not <laughs> sure if it's good or bad. Um, there's talk of um, extension of the paid parental leave scheme. Um, which I think that, you know, they're talking about about 180,000 families being affected by the extension of the scheme. I think that's great, but I think that it could still be a better scheme. Um, Mm. I think uh, paid parental leave is such an important part of um, the gender equality at work, and I think it's underrelated. I mean, maintaining workforce participation is such an important part of um, equality and in particular the the wage gap and and all the rest of it 
um, particularly for lower income employees. I think a lot of people think about parental leave uh, for, for people on that kind of executive level, but it's really, really important in terms of maintaining workforce participation, which has got so many different social benefits. And the countries that do parental leave in a really robust and effective way also have much better, you know, on the, on the gender equality scorecard. And I'm thinking in particular Sweden, I think, that's got a, a, a really um, strong scheme, which is very flexible. Um, so it's a good because they, they're talking about extending it, they're talking about extending flexibility, but I, I still think they could do a lot more. Yeah. Bats? Yes. Courtney, did you have a bad? Yeah, I have a bad. Um, At least she's done some work this week. She I know. I thought I couldn't, I couldn't pull it two weeks in a row. So my bad is kind of relevant sort of to today's topic of injured workers. So it's the Western Australian Department of Mines Industry Regulation and Safety Report. Um, and the reason this is back in the news is because there were changes to their Work Health and Safety Act. I'm not discussing that. I haven't really looked at it, but as of note, it actually now includes industrial manslaughter and things like that. Anyway, mm. the report revealed that mine workers in Western Australia are injured at a rate of more than one person per day. There were two fatalities last year that both occurred at underground coal mines and there oh. were 402 safety incidences incidents classified as serious and serious means that that incident resulted in an injury that disables a worker for two weeks or more and i just thought yeah that is bad it's It's just it's not good yeah injury in the workplace bad (laughs) (laughs) what do you have for bad essie so I have a bad, but it's it's more of an interesting, I'm not entirely sure if it's it's wholly bad, but the Fair Work Commission full bench has um, overturned an earlier decision uh, to reinstate a train driver who'd been um, dismissed after he had self-reported criminal charges that had been raised against him for drink driving. Um, now, the full bench found that Deputy President Cross, who made the early decision, had failed to consider the train driver's role uh, as being safety critical. So the dismissal was actually upheld. And I remember when the earlier decision came out, was it last year? And I just remember reading it and thinking, oh, wow, I'm so surprised that, you know, Deputy President Cross would actually allow for reinstatement in these circumstances. Um, And the train driver himself did actually explain his personal circumstances that had led to that particular incident of drinking and that he had been um, seeking treatment uh, for that. And... I thought it was quite compelling, but I was also surprised um, considering the role uh, as a train driver that they would have um, still allowed reinstatement. So it's it was quite yeah. interesting. It's a bit of an yeah. all-rounder. Yeah, definitely. What's your bad? My bad is uh, from the budget again. Um, the discussion of changing the way that redundancy severance is calculated under the National Employment Standards. And from what I understand, um, they're talking about doing redundancy as an averaging over the course of employment, much like long service leave, um, so that, you know, uh, 
you know, sorry, I should explain. At the moment, if you've gone from full-time to part-time or part-time to full-time, the redundancy severance is calculated at the income when the redundancy occurs. And what they're talking about doing is, is doing it on an averaging basis over the course of employment, like in a similar way that the long service leave is averaged. I, I, I don't agree with that. I, I think it's really important to understand that redundancy is not an accrued entitlement. It's something that only crystallizes as an entitlement at the moment of redundancy, and it's purposed on um, assisting employees during the period of time it's going to take them to find new work when they're when they're made suddenly and when they're suddenly out of work. That's the the, the premise of redundancy. So, to, to my mind, there's good rationale for redundancy um, being paid at that end of employment rate because that's what the person was doing when they got made redundant and i think um changing it around to actually there's, there's already too much sense in the in the employment community about redundancy being this kind of accrued like like annual leave or like personal leave or long service leave and and i i think that enacting a change to make it appear even more like that is is a regressive move so i'm, I'm not in favor of not in favour of that. Um, I had a couple of other bads up my sleeve, but I'm, I'm not going to go there because I don't want to be too <laughs> <laughs> Ugly. Who's got an ugly? I have an ugly. I have such an ugly. I'm very yeah. excited to share it. Uh, <laughs> so, I, just for context, I've told Brian and Essie already that I have a really exciting ugly. I've been waiting all day to tell them. So this is, it's an unfair dismissal case and it has everything. We have failure to pay superannuation, failure to pay overtime, dismissal for making an inquiry about those failures, so adverse action. We have company phoenixing and we have a murder threat. A murder threat? Yeah. So... Um, an employee was dismissed by his employer after making inquiries about his unpaid superannuation. Also, the employee was working overtime and not being paid for that. So when the employee inquired about his superannuation, the employer advised him that he couldn't pay him his superannuation for a certain period of time because it was actually a previous company that owed him that money and they had gone bankrupt and they could not pay him his superannuation. Right. As a side note, the Fair Work Commission was really critical of that claim by the employer and noted that the transfer of business in the previous company, yeah. the circumstances are really suspicious. Our Commissioner Reardon referred to what he says is the well-known duck principle, but looks like a duck, walks like a duck, quacks like a duck, then it's a duck. <laughs> yeah. um, so he didn't accept that it was a, a previous company. Yeah. Um, it wasn't relevant in the end anyway. So, yeah. well, so I, I would have thought just a due diligence thing. If, you, if you're taking over a company um, yeah. and that was a legitimate explanation, then they, they should have made sure that the super was paid up to date when they yeah. when they took on the liabilities. So, yeah. yeah. So, but that was saying that was actually more of a phoenixing move, was it? So, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, so we had that. And then so the employee asks, the employer says no and then tells him not to return to work and oh. dismisses him. Right. After this, after he is dismissed, the employee 
then threatens to kill him and says he'll make him dead. So the employer calls the police. Um, Anyway, so it's it's messy. It's not nice. The employer claims that he dismissed the applicant for threatening to kill him. But again, the Fair Work Commission said that happened after. Yes. As all our unfair dismissal fans know, needs to be a valid reason for dismissal and that couldn't be a valid reason for dismissal because he had already been dismissed yeah. in the inquiry. So on a side note of that, the employer then tried to sort of defend his position by making allegations that the, the applicant was working illegally in breach of his visa, which was also ironic because he was the employer um, and that was also dismissed. Right. The commission, yeah. they didn't want to hear that either. They found that the worker was unfairly dismissed for a lot of reasons, particularly the harshness of the fact that it was after making an inquiry about a workplace right being his yeah. superannuation. However, when it came to ordering compensation for that unfair dismissal, Commissioner Reardon said that no matter how unlawful or unfair that was, he didn't have the right to threaten physical violence. And given the gravity of his behaviour, he only ordered two weeks compensation, being that two-week notice period for dismissal. Wow. Yeah. That's so unexpected. Much. That was scandalous. Uh, that lived up to its expectations. That's right. that definitely the ugliest ugly we've had so far since we started the podcast. It was all there. You've got, you've got the award. <laughs> Yeah, oh, I'm going to have, have to have a read of that one. Yes. Yeah, yeah same. Really it sounds like a general protection would have been a better way to go. Well, yeah, they said in the decision that this was adverse action. Yeah. yeah. I've actually thought for a long time, and I think I wrote on our blog years ago about this, like how difficult it is to make the right choice in 21 days, and we see it regularly in our practice where there's – the applicant makes the wrong choice. They're bound by that choice. Um, they can't shift it. Like um, often, you see them being discontinued and refiled, and then they're out of time, and they don't they don't get the extension because they've made the wrong choice. I, I think there they could be a better way of doing it. Ugly. Have you got anything, Essie? I was just going to say Christian Porter's resignation speech. Not yeah. entirely gracious. <laughs> yeah. Oh, the whole situation is not. That's a, that's a classic ugly. I don't think we need to say any more about that. No. Christian Porter situation. But Stop I have. Um, and despite your complaints last time, Corner, there was too much sexual harassment. I couldn't help myself. I've got another sexual harassment case, which is a um, Qantas um, dismissed one of its trainers for allegedly uh, staring at uh, training participants' breasts for 20 seconds. And apparently the context was that he was talking about, it was a first aid type scenario, and he was talking about looking at eyes for responsiveness and looking at breathing uh, and whether or not somebody was breathing. The complainant who was involved in the training session was of the view that he was lewd and, and looking at her breasts and so made a complaint there was an investigation, there was a subsequent dismissal and it was held to be unfair on the grounds that they didn't have a valid reason for um, the dismissal. One of the critical things 
in the decision, and I'm raising it because I think it's so important, um, is that they only evidence that Qantas led was from the complainant. So it was the employee's evidence against the complainant's evidence, and there was quite a contrast in how they saw um, the, the, the events. Yeah. The witnesses that participated in the investigation did not give evidence for go. the commission. And the, the respondent has argued that they didn't need to give evidence because the commissioner would know exactly what was in their evidence because it was in the investigation report. Now, the commissioner did not accept that. Um, the, you know, the, there was no chance to cross-examine and there was a lot of implausible things about the complainant's story. And the commission went as far as actually saying that a Jones and Dunkel inference was available from the failure of those to call those witnesses, which is quite a, which is quite a bold step. Um, Jones and Dunkel basically is, you know, for, for those listeners that don't know, I don't want to get too technical, is basically in a situation where someone could lead evidence to support a, a party's case and those people are not brought to the hearing to give evidence, then an inference is available that that is sometimes available that those witnesses would not have helped the case. So um, there's another thing, and the thing that made it really ugly was there was evidence of a sexual harassment training that had been un undergone by the parties, and uh, the commissioner referred to it as being outdated and ludicrous. <laughs> ludicrous. <laughs> ludicrous video, apparently and was not consistent with contemporary um, sort of concepts around what constitutes sexual harassment, and it was apparently very old. So Very relatable. Yeah. I feel like that's a lot of those training videos can be a bit off mark. Yeah, totally. And, and you kind of, you, you know, from your really big employers, I think you expect... Oh, yeah. You expect them to get it right. Yeah. Um, we're, we're, not talking about a, we're not talking about a... a um, a mum and dad small family business here we're talking about a, a major airline that is oh, not yeah. only employs a lot of people but seems to spend a lot of time in the courts i mean it's their second mention just on this podcast <laughs> <laughs> anyway that's my ugly i thought that was pretty ugly but i wanted to keep the streak of um sexual harassment cases going always ugly so. you could probably find one for every podcast i think there's yeah there's a lot of it there's a lot of it I guess it's good okay. that people are challenging it, I guess, on the other hand. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, perhaps the other thing too is that what we're, that, yeah, they're challenging it, but maybe what we're seeing in terms of this spike, because we do a lot of unfair dismissal work and we look at a lot of unfair dismissal cases, it's the bread and butter of our practice. Um, perhaps employers are getting their acts together. Mm. And that we're, we're not seeing a spike in harassment, we're just seeing a spike in dismissals around harassment. So yeah. perhaps mm. it's a good thing, a good thing after all. Nice. So the movie, 12 Angry Men. So I think I have seen this as a small child. Basic synopsis, the entire movie is a jury. The movie opens with the jury being sent into the jury room to, to, to deliberate. And basically the whole movie is in the jury room with the 12 angry men um, discussing discussing the case. And I thought it was great. 
Oh, well, I, I really enjoy those classic movies that much, but I thought it was really good. I was so surprised by how engaged I was from like the opening scene. Just yeah. the, the way that they started it. I mean, I feel like the cinematography of this thing must have been like, they must have really thought about every single angle that they took in terms yeah. of like how it's filmed. Um, and I'm going to just, just like straight up start with my MDB facts here. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. but apparently uh, all but three minutes of the entire film were uh, shot inside that one room. Wow. Yeah. Which is just, and it's, it's amazing. It's kind of like, it was kind of like a play, wasn't it? It, yeah, like I looked up. It is a play. It is a play. Yeah. Is that how it started? I I think so because oh I found it on I googled it and I found it on Goodreads. It's like hold on a minute, it's a book, and oh, then I saw that it. Was a play. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, well, I was so impressed that in one room, like it was interesting. The plot was interesting, but was more impressive was that they were able to take something quite simple, yeah, not change up the scenery. And I was still so interested the whole way through. Yeah. It was such yeah. a credit to everyone involved. Yeah. Yeah. And and just the fact that it, it was sort of like to be that engaging when it was socially so distant mm. from us. Do you know what I mean? And it wasn't engaging because of that. You know, you read, you look at, you know, Pride and Prejudice or something and what's interesting about it, not, not to me, to be honest, but what's interesting about it is is the fact that it's in a different era but, yeah, but this this was a different era, but it was just totally engaging because it was engaging and still completely yeah. relevant. Like it was addressing yeah. prejudice and you know the, the system and how people think and preconceived ideas, which is it's relevant in every context. Yeah, you can yeah. always find something, even if it's not the same prejudice or the same direct issue. You can still take something from that and apply yeah. it. Yeah. And it is interesting, of course, that it wasn't. So this would have been was it nineteen fifty seven? Yeah, I get that. yeah. I'm assuming it was pretty pretty safe to say that only men could actually be on juries at that time. Yeah, so, that's right. You know, and I, I've, I've got a fun fact because I, I was really intrigued to look up when that changed. Yeah, um, because I was a little surprised that in nineteen fifty seven they were all male. Like mm. to, to be honest, like a jury of your peers doesn't that mean your peers not like. Yeah. <laughs> not men, you know. Um, but it's actually in America. It was 1957, which is the same year. Oh. That was that was federal juries, but it took until 1975 for all of the states to pass equivalent law mm. for 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 state um, state by state. So I think that was New York City. So I have to look up when. Um, but it was a. Uh, Oh, well, 1937, women in New York won the right to sit on juries. Okay. So why was it 12 Angry Men then? I don't know. Well, maybe it's not New York. I was just going from the baseball. I, my point of reference with everything America is is, is baseball. <laughs> uh, is sport, sorry. Um, I think, uh, I mean, I, what I loved about it, I suppose, is showing, like, it did have the legal elements in it, like, and basically reasonable doubt, you know, being such an important part, which was a si similar with my cousin Vinny, I, I, I guess, mm. um, such the critical part of all criminal trials and that concept of reasonable doubt. But the way, without, you know, spoiling anything, the way that the kind of consensus was formed and changed, I think was really fascinating, sort of seeing it, seeing how important it is that the that, that people, you know, and, and the fact that everyone, you know, was, was pretty much completely convinced except for one person right at the beginning. 
Um, and just seeing how that dynamic folded out, I think was really, um, really real and it was really engaging and the characters were really, really strong. I didn't like all of them. I think some of the jurors kind of let it down a little bit. Ooh, like, which ones? I, I think he's number seven. The guy... The old one? That, no, the no. The hat and the baseball. The guy Wait. that wanted to leave for the baseball. Num oh, he wasn't your favourite. Who's the one who was selling marmalade? Oh, I think he was juror 11. But he, he said oh, yeah. something about how he... Uh, the salesman guy with the, yeah. with the catchphrase. Yeah, he was 12, number 12, yeah. <laughs> he got 27 <laughs> grand in one year from selling marmalade. So I was like... Yeah. <laughs> he was funny. <laughs> I wonder what that is. I really liked the old, the old guy. The old guy yeah, same. Cool. I thought oh, that yeah. was number seven, so I was like outraged yeah. um but no yeah. no yeah <laughs> no no number seven was the guy with a hat yeah. that kept going on and on about the baseball and he kept wiping his face with that handkerchief yeah. which was really he's probably meant to be a little annoying he was annoying creep, creep, creeping me out yeah i just didn't find his character as strong do you know what i mean you know when when you have that kind of uh willing the suspension of disbelief you know sometimes when you when you, when a certain character's on you remember it's a movie instead of being something that you're engaged with yeah, yeah i felt like that i felt his character you know I really liked, um, I think, number four. So I think three was the main kind of the guy that was really outspoken about, like kind of leader of the of the guilty group. Yeah. Number number four was the really softly spoken, quiet one that that with the glasses. Yeah, he was good. Took a long time to persuade, and I thought he was a really powerful character as well. And when they um, persuade him that. Like, that scene. it was very it's much like, based on the facts, based on the facts, yeah. and just to show that well, facts, the facts are actually, you're yeah. not thinking about the facts, thinking about implications from the facts. Yeah. And yeah. again, not to spoil anything, but coming into, you know, how we realistic it was. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and about, like, kind of try to pull apart those facts. Um, I mean, there was a lot of things they did in, that, in, in the jury room that I don't imagine that you're actually allowed to do. I mean, he said he was, um, who's our main protagonist? The, um, who's Davis? He's, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, thank you. Yeah, he, um, he said he'd been walking in the neighborhood. He went to, you know, buy something from a shop that was related to it. Like all these little things um, mm -hmm. that I'm, surely you're not allowed to, you're meant yeah. to decide based on the information given to you at that, you know, in the courtroom, in the hearing. Yeah, the yeah, I, I definitely, and and you gotta wonder like if it was that overwhelming and if the defense was that underwhelming. Yeah. Um, how did the judge react when they came out after, you know, only a couple of hours and and gave the verdict? So I don't know. I it's, know. It's, I was thinking <laughs> that too, actually. <laughs> it's the, the whole thing was very interesting in that, but I think that just the depiction of those because you know everyone sees the courtroom dramas and the momentum, the swings and the ups and the downs of the evidence. But, but having the evidence static and then having the deliberation of it dynamic was mm. kind of like, it was really, it was really cool and I thought it was really, really effective. And, yeah. and I, as I say, it's for the characters to be that strong and that convincing. But also um, Quincy, do you remember Quincy, the show Quincy? He's one of the jurors. No. You don't remember Quincy? Okay, I'm too old. Sorry. The guy, the really quiet, I thought he was a good character, I think, and he was number five. Um, and he was a quiet one that got quite offended whenever Love they talked. Love the slums, about, like the, the slums. Yeah, slums. Yeah. yeah, he was good. Yes, yeah. And and he, as he, and I've never seen him as a young man, but you have to Google it. There's a show called Quincy. 
mm. which ran for years and years and years where there was like a doctor that was like investigating stuff and he's mm. Quincy. But he was when he was Quincy, that was like in the 80s or 90s, so it was like he was an older man. But I actually that, that cool. read something to funny see. about him too. He's Because um, his character apparently he was meant to be like, um, I don't know, possibly like Italian background apparently. Um, right. And um, his name is what, Jack? Klugman or something like that and he uh and yeah, he Jack spoke Klugman. To the, yeah and he spoke to the director he was like my character is meant to be a 20 to 21 year old Italian person I'm a 35 year old Jewish man <laughs> like <laughs> what are you doing and uh the director was like no 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 it's fine which you know it was it worked I didn't question it I didn't think he was Italian or 20 but um what I did think was interesting on another note was when people were saying oh but if that was a valid critique of the evidence the defense lawyer would have made it and then someone's like no lawyers can be stupid too yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was classic <laughs> yeah That's right. that was a classic line wasn't that um just to they are people like it's we're not a robot that's perfect i kind of like that none of them had names I mean it makes it difficult to yeah. talk about it a podcast i cannot remember the order of it people. was cool yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> But, oh, I only remember the ones that stuck out to me. I know that, like, one was the foreman, three was the kind of the angry guy. Yeah. Um, and four was that quiet, considered one with the glasses. Yeah. Two and was the voice of Piglet. Seven. You know what? Two no, was the six. voice of Piglet? Yeah. That's that was the round glasses. The quiet one, the, the soft spoken one. Now, and I have a spoiler sort of, so, you know, go yeah. watch the film. But apparently... <laughs> um, Everybody else in the room at some point gives their opinion as to why um, the kid is guilty or not guilty, except for the foreman, which is interesting. He yeah. never explains his reasoning, even when he changes his opinion. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that, that is really interesting, yeah. isn't it? I just, yeah. I find all the, all the choices that they've made, seeing as everything's done in one room, like yeah. everything from when someone you know, sits down versus gets up has just all been like... A, I don't know. I feel like you could probably decipher it for a couple hours. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it was good. Anyway, great choice. Um, I'm a nine for that. Ooh. Yeah, actually, even though I might even bump it to a nine and a half, and the half point is recognition of the fact that it was nearly 70 years old. That is so high. Yeah. Oh. I was going to say eight. Um eight. Yeah, I mean, again, recognition for the fact how old it is and, you know, the dialogue just sometimes was a bit funny um, just in terms of how they spoke. You know, there was a lot of, you know, see here, say, like it was a bit of, yeah, yeah, yeah. A bit of that. So um, but still very engaging. So, yeah, great. Eight. I thought an eight. Then I thought an eight and a half because I was just so impressed that it was one concept in one room. Yeah. Mm. Like what other movie could do that and get? get such a good score so At 8.25 then is this yeah <laughs> i have to compare it to all my other rankings that i've given we're gonna know. have to do we have to do something we have to do some sort of excel spreadsheet i'm losing i've completely lost track yeah 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 cool all right one's got any questions about how to manage absent employees that are absent for reasons of illness or injury please get in touch. It's a, it's a really high-risk area and um, we've only just scratched the surface in, in this one. Otherwise, thanks for listening. See you next time.